Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday. Uh, it is November 30th, if memory serves. And I'm your consumer goods host, Emily Flippin. And today I am joined by Asit Sharma. And we're going to be talking about a really exciting IPO that I think a lot of American consumers, especially, will know very well, which is Chobani. Thanks for joining, Asit. Emily, thanks for having me. Uh, really, really excited to talk about this one uh, because, as I just learned, we're both fans of yogurt. <laughs> Yogurt is such an agreeable food. It's hard not to be a fan of yogurt. And in particular, it's hard not to be a fan of Chobani. It's a yogurt brand that was relatively new at its time. I believe it got started around 2007, but took off uh, really quickly here in the United States because let me just say, it's delicious, right? Absolutely. Uh, I think that uh, Chobani is a high quality yogurt. I've always enjoyed the taste. I think they were marketing their version of Greek yogurt. A few years ago, I tried it. Now, this is not my go-to yogurt, uh, and perhaps we should take a quick quiz here. I have started eating uh, Bulgarian yogurt, made in in Texas, actually, Emily. Now the brand is escaping me, but uh, it's quite good. It has uh, a a tart taste. So this is very popular in Eastern Europe, and actually even in places like Turkey, where Chobani's founder hails from what is your go-to yogurt? Well, I I hate to be a spoiler alert for this episode, but my go-to yogurt is still Chobani, in particular, one of Chobani's best-selling products, which is their Flip Cups. Uh, It's basically dessert in a cup, I will say. So I'm not sure if it's the healthiest offering that Chobani has, but it's, in my opinion, the best. Although I know that the industry is very saturated right now with lots of alternatives. When Chobani was first getting started, the only yogurt that you could really get in the United States was, uh, say, you know, Yoplait, for instance, which is very sugary, very watery yogurt. With the expansion of Greek yogurt, there's also been the crop-ups of different types of yogurts. And you mentioned Bulgarian yogurt as one example. I know that what's popular in my area right now is skier, which I, I believe comes from Northern Europe. I could be wrong about that, but another very tart, very thick, very cultured yogurt. I want to say that skier is from Iceland, Emily, and I believe that there's a one strain of the yogurt, which is the de facto heritage strain. And you have skier and then you have skier knockoffs. But yeah, another another variety of yogurt that hails from Europe. I think we need to get busy here in the US because most of our innovation uh, was in the 70s and 80s. And that was bad innovation, right? That the adding of sugar that you talk about and um, artificial flavorings, which I think we've moved beyond. But this is such an interesting founder's story, uh, the the founder of Chobani hails from Turkey, as I mentioned, Hamdi Ulukaya. And when he came to the, the U.S. in uh, 1994, he missed the very natural, simple tastes that he grew up with on a farm in Turkey. And by chance, went to the sale of a factory after getting a flyer in the mail in upstate New York he bought the factory, which was about to shut down. It was a yogurt factory with 55 employees who were about to lose their jobs. He, he bought this on a whim, 
with bank financing. And that was the start of this journey that ends in an IPO. Uh, at least this stage of the journey now, uh, Chobani is headed towards the public markets. But I find that uh, origin story really inspiring. And I know I've knocked a few origin stories lately <laughs> as we've looked at S1s. So I thought I should should give credit to this one. This is a really feel-good story. Not only did uh, Hamdi Ulakaya start a company that employs lots of people uh, in the US, but uh, he also was a major proponent of yogurt that's just better for you, right? He's changed the way we approach it. Um, so many of us are healthier for that. And I love this story because when you look at how Chobani has grown today, um, you'll notice that one of the metrics they point out, and this is a big, big trend across their entire S1, is that uh, they still have this focus on, focus on inclusion and diversity. So I believe it was 30% of their employees identify as immigrants or refugees. Uh, they have a minimum hourly wage of $15 an hour with an average hourly wage of $19 an hour. So this is a company that I think is staying very true to the nature of how it was is founded and created. It is also a public benefit corporation. So taking a lot of actions to keep true to the ideas and the mindset that was underlying its founding story. Yeah, very mission-oriented. And I should say, too, that uh, just being able to do good in society and make a profit aren't mutually exclusive. There are a number of companies that we've seen become really successful with this model. Um, I know Etsy isn't a public benefit corporation, uh, but it is or was a B Corp. And I'm not sure if they even have that certification. But when they started uh, and came to the public markets, they certainly had that mission-driven bent. And we've looked at other companies here. Um, Coursera comes to mind, Emily, that is a B Corp plus has that public benefit corporation layer. So it's certainly doesn't hamper a company from at least getting to the public markets and growing at scale. I should add to this that the yogurt market is not a sleepy market. It is huge and there's a lot of competition in it. I googled this just a few minutes before we came on, um, but for viewers out there, I'm going to pause for a moment and be quiet. Take a guess how big the global yogurt market is. Emily may know, but I'm going to ask her not to chime in here. It is $40 billion. That is a huge market. When you look across the consumer goods spectrum, uh, there are few single food markets that approach that size. Um, and, and if anyone out there is a fan of the multinational food conglomerates, you'll often read how really big picture food categories like cereal or coffee or yogurt can affect one quarter's results. That's how big and bad this market is. So there's plenty of opportunity here. And I think Chobani has been a pretty innovative company in this space. It's, it's amazing how they've essentially created the Greek yogurt market and how they've pivoted from Greek yogurt into other areas as well. And to this point, we've mostly talked about Greek yogurt, right? That is the core of their business. It is the majority of their sales. But the majority of the growth that Chobani is experiencing is actually coming from their other products. So a lot of people may be familiar with their oat milk. If you remember back to when we did the Oatly episode here on Industry Focus a number of months ago, Chobani is one of the biggest competitors in oat milk. So they've managed to keep their brand, right? That Chobani brand and pivoting it into new areas. They also have some pretty popular plant-based coffee creamers alongside those, those 
kind of snacky uh, cups that are my personal favorite of the product line. So while you think about yogurt, and that is critical, right? Demand for yogurt globally, that $40 billion market is critical. Don't overlook the growth that's coming from new areas. Chobani is unique in the fact that they have a single brand that they've used across the consumer packaged goods space. I find it interesting to your point, Emily, that in the first nine months of this year, the company cited 39% of their net product sales were generated by product innovations. And those happen to be in North America. So it simultaneously uh, backs up your point about the growth and innovation coming from the newer markets that we're seeing other companies compete in. But it also shows how much white space this company has um, really uh, has scaled up in North America. But I think as a global company, there's some potential here as well. And um, we should mention here also that Chobani has a really huge, huge portion of the U.S. market. There is a really wonderful um, line chart in their S1 that shows their total market share in the U.S. for the last, oh, I don't know, 12 quarters or so. Uh, so basically, they've clawed their way up from an already big 17% to about 20% of the US market. And I have trouble wrapping my head around this as someone who's spent a lot of time in this industry. It is so rare to see any player, even if you look at the biggest uh, consumer product conglomerates in the world like Nestle or Mondelez have 20% share in any one major geographical uh, category. I was so surprised to see that metric It really was astounding. And I think it goes to show just how prominent the brand is. Again, instead of taking the approach of a parent company owning a single brand in yogurt and maybe a single brand and say butter or cheese or milk, keeping it all centralized. Although I will say I was surprised by I suppose the lack of detail that we got in Chobani's S1, I was expecting there to be some data around that aided or unaided brand awareness, especially underpinning that 20% market share. And maybe they feel like they didn't need it because that 20% market share spoke for itself. But I do wish they had it because I was curious to myself when I say the name Chobani, how many people immediately associate it with Greek yogurt? And more importantly, when I say Greek yogurt, how many people immediately associate it with Chobani? Uh, it's an interesting point, maybe because there's uh, nowhere to go from here but down. <laughs> so they probably will do well to maintain that share, I'm guessing, in the U.S. market while increasing share in the categories that you mentioned, like oat milk, um, all types of plant-based, that is non-lactose foods that their factories are equipped to manufacture. So maybe that's one reason. Uh, It doesn't do them much benefit to cite that here in the S1 and then have to report back on a yearly basis when they file that annual report that the unaided brand awareness has declined a bit as competitors have come in. But uh, holding that number one position is going to be important. We know that Greek yogurt has become an essential part of the yogurt market because consumers are trending younger and healthier. So this is the sort of a right place, right time business in that it scaled up as the demographics of the yogurt market were changing. I'm very interested in another stat, which we didn't get a huge amount of uh, detail on 
it's, this is a bar chart in the S1. Emily, they have an amazing compounded annual growth rate for a consumer goods company. Between uh, 2010 and 2020, the company grew at an annualized rate of 19%. So now they have about $1.4 billion in sales as of their last fiscal year. I wonder how much of that is front-loaded in the early days, and I wonder what the cadence looks like over the last, um, I don't know, six to seven years. We have a few years of data in the consolidated income statements, but I wonder about that trend going forward. The the best path that a consumer goods company can expect in a global market of this size is usually something in the mid-single digits, meaning you're keeping a couple of percentage points ahead of inflation. Now, with inflation rising, everyone's going to get a little bump up. So, let's just say high single digits for argument's sake. But I think that's still, a, if, if that becomes a normalized growth rate, let's say in the next 10 years, I think that still leaves us as an attractive business with all the adjacencies they're exploring. I was curious if you had any thoughts on uh, that growth pattern. Well, just that this is definitely going to be a, a slowing business. I think a lot of the big explosive growth is behind Chobani. When you look at their expansion into things like oat milk, one of the notes that they make is that uh, you know they have over 260 yogurt SKUs, so they've expanded a lot. When you think about the oat milk category, they're number thir- three in the category, so third in terms of market share, less than six months after launching onto the shelf. So again, using that brand, getting really big in this space. Their coffee creamer is over 10% of the total market share for U.S. coffee creamers. A lot of that product innovation, which is internally generated, and I have to give them respect for that, but a lot of that product generation is in the past. So I think repeating that success may be more challenging. The low-hanging fruit has already been grabbed for Chobani. But this is sustainable growth, right? The demand for things like coffee creamer, the demand for yogurt, although a little bit more variable than coffee creamer, these aren't going away. I just don't think you're going to get that 20% compound annual growth rate for much longer into the future. So I would expect that to continue to taper down and go back to that just above inflation average. Yeah, for for sure, the market though is big. So let's say that there are those out there who have had this great experience of investing in some of the big consumer conglomerates when they were smaller. And I'm talking about you who are listening today who are decades investors <laughs> and like companies that are rock solid in that sense. This market, so if we just look at the the, the market what Emily was talking about here, the non-dairy probiotic market in the US. That's an $830 million market annually. So much space for this company to play in. And I do like the the characteristics of having this sort of innovation DNA um, and having mastered production at scale in a very short time. This company has not been uh, around that long. So you've got a lot of elements here, again, with that very engaged founder who has uh, a great culture, is built a great culture, is mission-oriented. You have many key elements of a successful investment. It's not going to be a a textile investment that's going to pull everyone's portfolio forward uh, and and be that comet uh, in in one's holdings. But I can see this being, for many people, a pretty solid play on the consumer goods space. But we would have to look at the financials to make that determination. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was curious, Emily. Uh, we had some chats uh, before we went on air um, this morning. What did you think looking over the financial statements? We we maybe buried the lead here with the story. And in fact, uh, we had a different story prepped for our episode today, but had to pivot when we got a hold of Chobani. And part of the reason why I was so interested in pivoting is because of this financial picture. Now, what I will say is, is that on an adjusted basis, this is a pretty profitable company. They make 4 to 5% adjusted EBITDA metrics. They have really strong operating cash flow. In fact, before even opening up the S1, I posed the question to my family. I said, do you think Chobani's a profitable company? And my immediate response was, yeah, of course Chobani's a profitable company. I thought about how large it was, how prevalent it was across most supply chains, especially in the United States. And I was very surprised to find out that on a non-adjusted basis, this company was not profitable. In fact, it was losing tens of millions of dollars. And a quick look at their balance sheet may explain why this business is not generating the very bottom line profits that I think are possible for it. And I, maybe I'll let you speak to why that may be the case. <laughs> well, the the easy answer is that this company is sort of levered up, Emily, and it makes sense in one context. Chobani grew from one factory, again, with 55 employees to uh, a company with a wide manufacturing footprint, and it has really scaled up as we've already decided to be a dominant player in the yogurt market. The flip side of that coin is they have $1.4 billion of debt on their balance sheet. Um, for me, a guy who's always talking on this show about working capital, their current ratio is one to one. That means they've got as much in ready money as they do in obligations due within one year. So it's not a company that has this fat balance of working capital. Um, with that debt load, what it means is that you're going to see an expression of interest expense on the income statement. That's the non-adjusted numbers that Emily was uh, number that Emily was referring to. When you factor in interest expense, what is a profitable operation on an operating basis becomes a loss-making company. But you know, I think that um, while we don't have the completed numbers in the S1, we just have placeholder blanks. We can already see from the use of proceeds that Chobani intends to use some of the proceeds from this offering to pay down some of its long-term debt. I'm just going to read a few figures to give you a flavor of this. This is from the past three years. Uh, the year ended December 29th, 2018, and then pull forward for the next two years. Chobani had an operating profit of 59 million bucks in 2018, their interest expense was 93 million dollars. In 2018, they had income from operations or an operating profit of 77 million bucks. They had interest expense of 95 million. 41 or let's call that 42 million dollars in operating profit in 2020, interest expense of 96 million. So you see the drag here on the income statement, it's the debt. What if the public came in and paid off a good portion of the debt that's been used to help Chobani grow. The picture starts to look a little different. Now, we don't have those final numbers, or at least I didn't see them uh, in the S1 version I pulled, um, and I don't believe they're out yet. But you, you have an equation that could work. I do want to point out, though, um, before I turn this back over to Emily for some thoughts, that a company like Chobani, which is so efficiency-focused, so productivity focused 
and uh, so bent on having a very solid manufacturing footprint is going to have ongoing capex, capital expenditure that's significant. So while the company is generating pretty decent operating cash flow every year, it's got a capital expenditure component that decreases the amount of free cash flow that's available to utilize. And I just just will give you one figure here that paints this picture. In the year they just finished, the year ended December 26, 2020, Chobani generated about $106 million in operating cash flow, but they had $74 million in capital expenditure. And that's pretty much par for the course if you go back a few years. That is a steady rhythm that they have where most of operating cash flow is being consumed by these investments in manufacturing. And that's probably going to continue for some time to come. It's just a fundamentally capital-intensive business, which makes it challenging and even more challenging when you add on just under $1.4 billion of debt, as you mentioned. Uh, For reference, the company did about $1.4 billion of sales in all of 2020. So it's a pretty hefty amount of debt they have. I'll be super interested to see what the company's financial picture looks like after they go public and after they've used some of this, this proceeds from this IPO to kind of rejig this business. But even with the debt load coming down, to your point, this is a business that just needs a lot of capital to grow and run. It's not fundamentally a bad thing, right? This is the nature of what it means to be uh, not just a consumer packaged goods business, not just a consumer goods business, but also a business that works in, in food, right? Refrigerated items, especially that can go bad. You have to be very quick with how you manage that inventory. But all of this together, I think, it kind of paints a, a picture to me that I will say feels a little less efficient than the company we're going to talk about next week. And that'll be my little tease to tune in for next week's episode, but both good businesses. Sure. And, and I will say, again, this is a, a signal to those really long-term investors. There is a payoff for all this capital expenditure and one of the payoffs is is visible and immediate. The company said that it fulfilled 98% of the heightened demand it had in 2020 uh, because they had invested in so much of these production facilities. They've got that original plant in New Berlin, New York, and they've got this what they call a state-of-the-art facility in Twins Fall. Idaho. So as they're adding capacity here, they've got the flexibility to meet challenges that come about and that results in in sales, right? If you don't have the production capacity and COVID happens, you won't get the sales on your top line if you can't meet that demand. So I was impressed by that. Um, They do have a facility in Melbourne, Australia, where they're producing yogurt and they're going to expand that plant to get into some of these adjacencies um, in, in Australia by the end of this year. The last thing that we probably should mention about their approach to production goes back to something Emily was talking about at the beginning of this episode, that they do have this culture of innovation. They've got what they call an innovation and community center in Twin Falls. So it's an R&D facility, 71,000 square feet, but it's about research and development and also family. So it's a, a weird sort of facility. I don't think I've ever read about one that's quite like this, which doubles as a wellness center in the same premises where the company is dreaming up its next big products um, in the market that it markets that it wants to compete in. So I think there's some fun stuff going on with this capital expenditure that fits within the, the mission, the overall 
bent of this company, both from an efficiency and manufacturing side and, and from the cultural side we mentioned. So moving beyond the next, I don't know, three to five years for those who might be looking for that next CPG investment. This is still interesting to me. I have to add to the tease, though, maybe we're going to see a more efficient model a week from today when we talk about an exciting company that uh, Emily has uncovered. Well, I'm, I'm excited to talk about both of these businesses with you. I'll be really interested to see which one gets the edge to you. Not that these are two comparable businesses. So the, the company we're talking about next week is not a yogurt company. So fair warning. But either way, really great businesses. It's fun to see such interesting consumer packaged goods businesses coming to the market. And, you know, awesome. Thank you, as always, for being willing to chat through them with me on the show, which we should really just na- rename the S1 show at this point. <laughs> I know, right? One day, one day we'll get away from these uh, quick teardowns, but they are so much fun. And um, I know we've got just a minute or so before you have to go. I want to squeeze in one more detail uh, before we sign off, and that is something I forgot to say earlier. This company has its own in-house creative agency, so a lot or most of the branding and advertising that we see from Chobani comes from within, which is impressive too. Awesome. Well, Asit, thank you for joining. And I you know, can't wait to keep an eye on this. Sounds great. Thanks, Emily. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool On. Fool On.